That's right. They were they were you know the quintessential hometown hardware for almost 150 years. Right, and uh, they moved out of that building I think in the 1990s uh, to a site in uh, North Raleigh. In fact, uh, not very far from where WPTF was, and uh, mm-hmm. and the building became available for other purposes. And it has been would it be correct to say restored? Yeah, it was. Uh, I think after the Briggs family moved out, um, they became. The, the, the Raleigh City Museum moved in, helped restore that building, and it's just a, it's just a beautiful relic of Raleigh's bygone era. And a lot of uh, I know that a lot of interesting things happened there. In fact, the thing that I remember is that the Watauga Club, you heard of that, had mm-hmm. their meetings in the, an upper floor. It's about it was a kind of a skyscraper for its time. I think it's what four or five stories. Mm, it's about four stories. Four stories and. Uh, the Wachtonga Club had their meetings in the upper, upper one of the upper rooms, and it was that group of uh, distinguished men who pushed for the establishment of a school called the North Carolina State University, and uh, it was opened, I think, you know, in 1889 or somewhere thereabouts. In fact, I think if you really do a lot of good stuff for NC State, they give you a medal called the Wachtonga Medal. But anyway. But yeah, I think you told me that they, they had a dancing school there. They had dances. And they had all oh, kinds yeah. of assemblies. I mean, I mean be- before Raleigh had a lot of civic space, the Briggs Hardware was the, the, the community center. And uh, we've got an exhibit in the museum on the history of the Briggs family and the Briggs Hardware. And we trace so much of Raleigh's genealogy back to the Briggs building. Uh, the Museum of Natural Science started there. Um, the Catholic Church had mass there. The National Guard had a, um, a drill hall there, even with a shooting range on one of the floors. So it's just, uh, you know, it's woven into the DNA of Raleigh for the past uh, 150 years. And so what, what, what you end up is if you if there weren't any exhibits, if you were just standing there, you would be looking at a significant piece of the history of Raleigh, uh, just looking at the, the, the Briggs Hardware Building. And uh, that is, is it, what is it, 222? 220. 220. I was just one, one number off. Uh, Fayetteville Street. And we, I see this, Ernest, this is important stuff, I think, because so many people who live and say they are citizens of Raleigh now may not come downtown very often, but if they do, they don't know the history of Raleigh and, and mm-hmm. what was significant. And, uh, uh, a lot of the parts downtown really haven't changed that much because Raleigh uh, uh, it, it expanded into suburbs before it really got big downtown. So there's a lot of stuff. Uh, some of it's been modified, uh, upgraded. Uh, the Raleigh uh, Memorial Auditorium and so on is obviously not the same as it was 25 or 30 years ago, and nor is the Briggs Hardware Building. But you get a sense of what what the downtown part of Raleigh was like. And, of course, the capital has been there since 1840. And uh, so it's, it's worth uh, tracing down the history of uh, some of the, the parts of our capital city. Now, I've been saving this because you told me you have a, a uh, an exhibit that is supposed to open this weekend. And I, I thought, well, we'll talk a little bit generally and identify our audience with the Briggs Hardware building, which is the home of the City of Raleigh Museum, of which Ernie Dollar is the executive director. Then we'll take a break and we'll come back. And Ernie, then you can tell us about the new exhibit. Is that okay? 
That sounds perfect. All right. You'll be back, John. Yeah, now AM 680, FM 98.5, Tom Kearney with the Tom Kearney Show. And tonight our guest is Ernest Dollar, the executive director of the City of Raleigh Museum. I think I got that one right. I think Raleigh comes before a museum. Is that right, Ernie? That's right. Okay. Now, you were telling me, and it was just pure luck, I it was I invited you to come uh, to be our guest because I thought it was time to have some more history on, and you tell me you're going to have a new exhibit uh, appropriate in its timing at the City of Raleigh Museum that should open this Friday, so we can give it a little extra promo here. Tell us, tell us what's coming up. Well, in honor of uh, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, uh, the right women get the right to vote, we have uh, explored what did this mean for Raleigh. And so we are opening an exhibit called Women of Change, the Legacy of the 19th Amendment. So we talk about those early first suffragettes in North Carolina who campaigned hard to, uh, to get the vote. And then we follow them. What did women do with that right? And how did they reshape politics for the next century? So we carry it from 1920 to 2020. Okay. Now, uh, maybe throwing you a curveball, but uh, Raleigh was a solid uh, uh, older town, not a very large town at that time. In fact, most most of its growth has come post-World uh, War II and indeed post-1970. Uh, when I moved to Raleigh, it had 170,000 people or thereabouts, and I think it has about... 460,000 now, but any, do you remember any of the names of the suffragettes in Raleigh? Yeah, you know, uh, one of one of the, the most illustrious is one of your, your hometown girls, Gertrude Leal, who was from Goldsboro, but she came to Raleigh and decided to, to organize a lot of these women into the campaign for suffrage. And I know you had on Barry Porter last night, um, and we had worked with Barry on an exhibit of the, the Beginnings of the Red Cross in 1916. So some of these women are who are organizing the Red Cross. They're they're helping doughboys out in Raleigh. They're fighting the uh, Spanish influenza. They're the same ones who are going to campaign for suffrage. I remember a lady Barry has been a regular guest over the years. Who I think her name was Lefty or something like that. Her nickname was who was a significant member of the group of women who uh, created the Raleigh chapter of the Red Cross. Uh, about nineteen, about about nineteen seventeen, about the time you know the the suffragette amendment was being considered, and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it, it doesn't surprise me that the people, the Barry and the Red Cross people, were involved in that. And of course, uh, Miss Gertrude, as citizens of Goldsboro would have called her, uh, was a longtime resident, and her family was perhaps for a long time in the late 19th and early 20th century, the most significant family in Goldsboro. They owned a, uh, a number of businesses. They had done very well. They had come to America in the 1850s to get out of the wars of Europe. And uh, and Miss uh, uh, Wheel, Miss Gertrude, uh, had gone north to get her college education, but she came back south to live with her family and to take care of her mother and but that didn't mean she wasn't going to be active politically, and she was, as you know. And so, uh, I guess if people go to this museum, they can see uh, what she, what part she had. Any Raleigh ladies, you know? Uh, uh, yeah, you know, uh, Patty, Patty German. Um, somebody, she was considered called uh, the, the 
state's first lady. Um, you had the bigots who were, you know, um, Governor Bigot. His wife was one of these women. So these are sort of the, the cream of the crop of uh, upper echelon Raleigh society of these women who really had the, the power to affect change. So they campaigned hard for the, uh, the amendment. But when it came down to the vote, um, North Carolina didn't want to be the state that was the last one to ratify it. So they pushed it off and pushed it off till Tennessee became that state that was the one that pushed it over to approve the amendment. So North Carolina only approved that amendment into the 1970s, officially. Interesting, interesting. When did Tennessee, I guess it was in, in the teens, is that right? 1920, yeah. So we, you know, it was between North Carolina and Tennessee about who would be that last state. And neither of them wanted to be that state. So North Carolina ducked it and dodged it and postponed it until Tennessee was the one that took the fall. And then, you know, the other thing about Raleigh is that there were women who campaigned against equal suffrage. And that's pretty interesting that through this exhibit we see pro and con women kind of go head-to-head over some of these issues. Are you still there, Ernie, or did we leave? I am. I, I was going to say, I guess things were kind of interesting at the women's club in those days. Uh, and, uh, wherever women met, met you know, normally, uh, the, the competing points of view. But uh, I think that's interesting about North Carolina holding out because, you know, you know your American history that North Carolina was one of the last states to ratify the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Only Rhode Island was after North Carolina, and it was one of the last to to secede from the Union, as a matter of fact, I believe, so, in 1861. That, that, that's, that's very typical North Carolina, it seems. They're holding back just to see what's going to happen. They don't, but anyway, <laughs> but I didn't didn't realize there had been a, uh, I don't know, want to call it a competition, so I've learned something tonight with Tennessee. I remember about the, earlier this year, maybe in the summer, uh, there was a like a documentary on television about the Tennessee and the, how the women organized and so on. And, and, uh, when I first started watching it, I, I thought it was North Carolina ladies, but it turned out it was Tennessee. And now I realize they're imported. And and, uh, and it was the 19th Amendment. Okay, I, I have trouble remembering that because there was one other amendment that, that was kind of imported along in there, and that was the one that prohibited the uh, selling of liquor. As a matter of fact, I think it was the 20th Amendment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, was, it was fascinating to work on this exhibit and just to see where, where all of these social causes, these women, pop up in, in over the years. And, you know, trying to look at these early suffragettes, you see, you know, very highly motivated women coming together for all these social causes. And, and you can make that, we try to make the argument in the exhibit that it just never stopped. That, you know, even today there are such um, motivated women on political causes, social causes. And, you know, they have just reshaped the United States through this, this power of the vote. Interesting, yeah, the power of the vote. And, and I guess one of the questions one would ask is, okay, now, now the women had the vote. A historian would be looking at this. It seems to me, anyway, that uh, the women got the vote. What did they do with it? And you, you, you find that your studies have shown that a very positive thing, that things kept, kept rolling. And, of course, in about 10, 15 years, they would have a good example of that in Mrs. Roosevelt's eye. And I'm talking about Eleanor, uh, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she was, you know, 
almost had two presidents there for a while, and uh, <laughs> she, she let Franklin know what. And uh, and of course, these women had had rights in their own. They they accomplished a lot, and they also leaned on their husbands a little bit. I remember, I now remember the quote that I heard in that documentary on Tennessee. They were talking about giving women the right to vote, and one of the women said, "They didn't give it to us; we took it." <laughs> So this this exhibit is going to be, begin and Friday then, right? Yeah, we we kind of look at the sort of the lead up to the big suffrage decision and, and a lot of those women, <clears throat> what life was like in North Carolina before the vote, and uh, you know we we kind of follow them once they get the right to vote on through the the thirties, forties, and fifties, and we we kind of look at how what social factors kind of shaped women's involvement in politics. And, you know, this is something that every time I do these exhibits, I learn so much more about history that it makes me feel stupid that I didn't know all this stuff. But, you know, you could spend a lifetime trying to fill your noggin with history and never get it all packed in. So there's a couple of surprises that I ran across in, in doing this exhibit. Tell us what they were. We've still got a couple of minutes before we need to take our break. Uh, well, you've teased the thing. You know, never. <laughs> well, one of the women that uh, I surprisingly ran across, and some of the listeners might know her, is Phyllis Shafley. I had no idea who she was. And this is a, another woman who was uh, very conservative, very opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment, and fought very hard against it and kind of laid the groundwork for the Republican Party we see today. So um, it is, it's just interesting that throughout the women's history that we see, sometimes these women come head-to-head over these issues, and it was hard to try to understand the motivations of what these women wanted and why they opposed what these other women wanted. So, yeah, Phyllis Shafley is the, the most interesting, one of the folks I found in this exhibit that was just very, very interesting to learn about. What was the name of her book? Do you remember? Oh, I don't. I don't. Remember, she wrote a book. She was within my lifetime because she was a big mm-hmm. supporter of Barry Goldwater. And, and the, right. Oh, we have a great picture of her out at um, Jordan Arena campaigning against the Equal Rights Amendment with Sam Irvin, Senator Sam. Okay. Well, Senator, Senator Sam was respected by just about everybody, right or left. Uh, uh, and that's why he ended up being, I think, the chairman of the Watergate Committee, as a matter of fact, because people trusted him on both sides. Uh, we, don't get, we don't have enough time to mention it. I, I guess you might want to mention it at some point. My former na- neighbor, Mrs. Cannon, uh, who became the mayor of Raleigh. Uh, of Raleigh's first female mayor in 1977. In fact, the only mayor of Raleigh. Uh, no, that's not true. That's not true. There have been some since then. But she she kind of opened the gates and so on. And uh, anyway, uh, maybe and, we and can I- come back to her. But we need to stop right now and check the news on WPTF where it's 930. Uh, 9.33 at WPTF. I'm here. We're live and in real time as we are every night, Monday through Friday from 9 until 10. And this is the place in our program where we usually do a little promoing. I will remind you, though, that we post our schedule for the week every Monday morning, and it's on the WPTF website. If you go to it and just punch in host and find myself, uh, the schedule of the five programs for the week will be there. Uh, it says uh, tomorrow night that Joe Newberry is going to be our guest. Joe is a pretty fair banjo picker and uh, singer uh, of traditional music, but I have a feeling he, 
he has command uh, understanding of, of much of the world of music. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow night. Uh, but uh, Joe will be our guest. He's been uh, as frequently as we can can slow him down to be our guest on WPTF and on the Tom Kearney Show. Thursday night is going to be nostalgia program, and I'm not quite sure what the topic is going to be there. And Friday night is going to be Friday night trivia, and I think uh, my brother Stephen is going to return. He hasn't been on as much lately as he has been at times, uh, uh, otherwise employed in things that uh, doesn't always have time to do everything. But uh, we're going to talk about uh, and have trivia connected with movies and television programs that uh, have, have some portrayal of American Thanksgiving. So you'll want to tune in uh, for that. And uh, so that's what's coming up for the rest of this week. Uh, tonight, the schedule says we're going to have Ernest Dollar, Executive Director of the uh, City of Raleigh Museum on and the Pope House Museum. And by goodness, that's exactly who is here. Ernie, are you still there? I sure am. Okay. Do we, do, do we, well, I, I was going to say we can come back to the suffragette uh, uh Exhibit, if if you want to, in a minute. But we haven't done something that I I try to find a place in the program. I don't usually like to do it at the beginning. Is let's, we've talked about where uh, the uh, city of Raleigh Museum is in the, the Briggs Hardware Building on Fayetteville Street downtown. What what are the hours of the museum? So we are open from Tuesday through Saturday from nine to four, and Sundays from one to four. And how are you handling the the situation vis-a-vis the uh, Coronavirus. Yeah, so that's 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 a million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah, uh, so it's, it's something you have to confront one way or the other. I usually. It's <laughs> very true. So you know, uh, we, we our, our museum is totally dedicated to having the public come in, and so we we're out of the safety of the public and the staff that work there. That uh, when people arrive at the museum, they'll be doing a wellness check, uh, simply just taking your temperature and giving the folks your name and. We just ask folks to kind of spread out in the museum to, to explore on your own. But, yeah, the doors are open, and we've got people coming in. So, Okay, so uh, now I know what I need to know, and I would feel safe there, and I would feel safe taking my family there. So that's good. That's good. That's what I needed to know. So once again, Tuesday through Saturday, what hours? Uh, 9 to 4. 9 to 4, and on Sunday? Just 1 to 4. And closed on Monday. Right. Okay, there you go. City of Raleigh Museum. Now, we've talked about a number of the exhibits, and I know earlier you mentioned that you have, I think, an exhibit, and we'll just hit this one one more time here and then move on, but dedicated to the, the Briggs hardware and the Briggs family. Is that not correct? That's right. Uh, we kind of talk about their influence on the building of Raleigh, the shaping of Raleigh, and just the history behind that beautiful, iconic building that the museum occupies. Okay. Now, one of the exhibits that you had that I've always thought would be, a, uh, I don't get out very much anymore, but uh, uh, the one that I particularly want to see, of course, I saw it over the years in pieces, and that is the, the cartoonist. I'm trying to think of his name right now. Huh? Dwayne Powell. Dwayne Powell. It's still there, isn't it? It sure is. Uh, that's uh, That whole exhibit is it's such a hoot. And if, if you follow Dwayne over the years, um, if you just want to... Uh, see a collection of his work and, 
and learn about who the man was and and just his his unique career path. Um, that's that's a great exhibit because we talk about not only his uh, cartoons for the News Observer, but what does a political cartoonist? What role do they play in the American political tradition? So. Even before it was in America, political cartoons were advocating for American independence. So we kind of follow that through through Dwayne's life. Uh, I've always liked cartoons. Uh, The comics are one of my favorite parts of the newspaper. And a lot of times, I'll just admit to you, I don't read much on the editorial pages. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I always look at the cartoons. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, of course, we've had a number of great cartoonists. Uh, uh, Of course, Dwayne Powell was one in Raleigh. the Washington Post for many years had a cartoonist named Herbert Block. Herb Block, and he, he just ran mm-hmm. his name together, but he was famous. A lot of Pulitzer Prizes. And uh, one of my father's favorite cartoonists was a man named Bill Malden, who had been a, uh, a staff artist for Stars and Stripes during World War II and, and drew a bunch of cartoons about a pair of guys named Willie and Joe. And uh, uh, it made him very famous with the, with the enlisted men. Because they always said that, that Malden got it right, and he, when he got out of the army, he became a cartoonist, I think, for the Chicago Tribune or something like that. But uh, very famous, and of course, I'm running away from you here. But the, the since it's about to be the Christmas season, Thomas Nass, who was oh, a cartoonist, yeah. and you know about him. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of our images of Santa Claus are due to Thomas Nass, and they were drawn in the 1870s and 80s. But uh, Dwayne Powell. Of course, we'll have his renditions of uh, the senior senator from North Carolina, Mr. Jesse Helms. And they set to a number of times, didn't they? Oh, they did. And, you know, one of the, the exciting, we, we named the entire exhibit from a Jesse Helms quote that he, he talked to Dwayne about. Um, Dwayne would always say that whenever you do a Jesse Helms cartoon, he would call him up and say, you really stuck it to me today. <laughs> and wanted the cartoons for his office, so his whole office was decorated in Dwayne's, uh, Dwayne's cartoons. So they had a, a good relationship, I think. As I remember, Dwayne started out in Arkansas, and he had been a, a cartoonist in Cincinnati, I think, before he came to Raleigh. Does that sound right to you? That's right, and you know, he never had any classical art training. So uh, one of the things that you, if you go to the exhibit, you will see somebody who is, truly has just a natural. God-given talent for, for doodling and drawing. So that's one of the most amazing things that uh, we, we try to get across in the exhibit is just what, uh, what like when humor and artistic uh, talents come together, you have somebody like Dwayne Powell. I'm thinking, I'm doing this off the top of my head. Do you have a, an exhibit dedicated to Lawson, John Lawson? We used to. We had that up last year, and that's down now. Um, okay. We've replaced that with uh, that's sort of a, one of our short runs exhibit, and right now we've got uh, that space is taken by an exhibit called the Music Man, and this is a story about um, a guy named Joseph Winter Sr. And so he was one of the first African American policemen in Raleigh, but his side hustle was booking shows. So he's bringing all of these incredibly famous people like James Brown or Rita Franklin, Cool in the Gang, uh, all of these performers to Raleigh and, and are doing these shows. So his son gave us an incredible treasure trove of posters and tickets and, and personal notes from when when his father is booking these shows. So it's just a 
interesting way to see how culture is imported into Raleigh through these, these musical acts. And I think Raleigh was considered a major stop on the, on the road, particularly for black artists. Tell me his last name again. Uh, Winters, Joseph Winters. Oh, yeah. Well, and Recently I've read a book, and I recommend it to you and to others, by David Benconi, the longtime arts correspondent for the News and Observer. And I think he mentions uh, this. The, uh, I think Mr. Winters was involved in politics, too, as a matter of fact. Uh, that was his brother, John Winters. John Winters, okay. A, uh, okay. Yeah, on the city council. Right, right, okay. And I knew I had seen, it, read, seen or read something about that somewhere, and I'd, I'd seen some pictures of some of the posters that had been produced. And, and I, of course, I grew up in Goldsboro, but the morning newspaper in Goldsboro was the News and Observer, and so it was just like being in a suburb of Raleigh. And if there was an <laughs> act appearing in Raleigh or somewhere at... Uh, wherever it would appear, usually at the Memorial Auditorium, but other places, then, then we would know about it. Then. So you begin to say names that sort of reverberate with me and sound like something that, that is, in fact, familiar. Uh, okay, uh, The Music Man, I, I like that. That's one of my favorite Broadway musicals, but that's about another music man somewhere else. <laughs> Anything right now you want to draw your attention to? Uh, beyond that, another exhibit? Uh, I think the last major exhibit we have in the museum is on, on Dorothea Dix Park. Uh, can, we've been can, we, a lot can, of time. can you hold that? I was going to ask you about that. That was the next thing. I didn't know you were going to go to that. Let's take a break. <laughs> and if you were talking about Dorothea Dix Park, and if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about who Dorothea Dix was. Sounds good. Because you know, when they talked about closing the hospital and everything, I had this kind of a nightmare of Dorothy Dix's name being forgotten, and it should not be. Uh, she had did significant work, as you know, and that's why the place was named after her. But we'll talk about Dix and and, uh, and a little bit of the history of that and the, the park. When we come back, our guest tonight is Ernest Dollar of the City of Raleigh Museum. History is what it's about. Tonight, uh, November the 17th, and Ernie Dollar of the uh, City of Raleigh Museum is our guest. And not only is Ernie the director of the museum, I've talked to him a number of times over the last few years, and he really knows his history. Uh, Ernie, you got an undergraduate degree at UNCT, is that not right? That's right. I'm, I'm work, I'm, again, I'm, I want you to tell me if I pass the test now. You have a <laughs> master's degree from NC State, is that not right? That is correct as well. And that's where you had Dr. Cadell and some of our other friends as one of your professors. Or at least he was on your committee. I don't know if he, you took his course or not. I but, did. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't much of a course except listening to him tell these most wonderful stories I ever heard in my life. Oh, he, he's quite a rock tour. Did you take anything with Dr. Chris? Uh, yeah, I did. Okay. Okay, he's another person who's been on our show a lot of years, not much recently, but a long time ago, we spent a lot of time talking about Davy Crockett and the Alamo. But uh, yeah. that's another good story. But it, it, Dorothy Dix is a good story, too. And and I, I thought, well, if, if Ernie comes tonight and he's willing, we could talk about Dorothy Dix and why they named the mental hospital after her. Do you, you know her story, I guess, uh, that she became interested in how in the bad treatment of of mentally deficient people and how they were, you know, chained in down in basements and mistreated and everything. And she 
went around the country, you know, banging the drum, so to speak, for better treatment for uh, people who were uh, had mental problems. Yeah, I mean, she was a reformer of the first rate, and you know, to go across the United States at that time to kind of convince states to to sink a lot of money into these people who had society had kind of thrown away was was a fairly radical radical move, but she was uh, dangerously good at her job and even convinced old North Carolina to, to sink some money into the, the hospital that bore her name eventually. But it was actually, she didn't want it named after her to begin with. They named it after her father. But over the time, they had actually uh, renamed it in her honor. Interesting. I, I never knew that. Uh, I, I, I will tell you that you... you might have an exhibit on this sometime. The 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 mental hospital for the Negro in Spain was the asylum. I think they call it was built in Goldsboro, and I think it was the first freestanding one in the world for for uh, African Americans. Right. How about that? Uh, and what, that that's uh, 1886, I think, right around in there. So somewhere along um, there. Yeah. One of the interesting things is you know uh, the, doing research on Dorothea Dix, not only the hospital, but the land that encompasses the the hospital, um, part, but now the Dorothea Dix Park, is just fascinating. I mean, there's just so much deep and complex history on that site. And you talked about the African Americans going to Goldsboro, but all the Native Americans went to Dorothea Dix. That's when you have a complex, complex racial situation. You know, we've got one county in the state that has that, and that is Robeson County. Uh, which is, uh, uh, has a white population, uh, an African-American population, and a Native American population. Mm-hmm. The and I've actually heard, you may, may tell me if this is true, that there is a, uh, an in, increasing movement uh, with some prominent senators to recognize the Lumbee tribe. To get that federal recognition, that's right. But, that's what, you know, that's uh, what they've been seeking for for mm-hmm. a long time. But uh, uh, that... Uh, that that's an interesting door to look at uh, the racial situation in some place like North Carolina that, that you've just out described, and and that is where which group went to which hospital, and, uh, yeah. and that the Native Americans went to the hospital for the whites. Uh, they may have done. a lot of in a lot of the states in the South. I know it was true in Mississippi. The the hospital for the Negro in Spain was actually just the wing. You know, a particular building of the White Hospital, but in North Carolina they built a, a, a freestanding hospital, uh, and uh, there used to be a tuberculosis hospital. But that's a that, that's a story you ought to look into sometime too. I'm giving you free advice tonight, Ernie. Uh, <laughs> is that there were a lot of tuberculosis hospitals because it was extremely widespread. There was one in Goldsboro and one in Wilson and several other all over the state because mm-hmm. before the World War and the presence of uh, penicillin, uh, tuberculosis, or what they used to call consumption, was, was pretty widespread, and so they needed a lot of hospitals to deal with those, and so on. So, but history is, that's why history is fascinating, and you've spoken several times tonight about what you do when you start researching a topic for, I, that's what I have to do when I have a book, or I have a distinguished historian like yourself, I have to prepare myself to, and, and I end up learning a whole lot. 
uh, sometimes if it, there's a recurrent appearance by a particular historian or a particular subject, you end up knowing just about as much as he does or she does. Uh, it, it's you know it, it's a lifelong dedication to history to try to try to wrap your head around it and you know as, as soon as you fill it up with knowledge <laughs> you hit the end of the road. So is there anything that. at Diggs Park? I have not been to the park that now would, would indicate to a person who went there and did not know that once the hospital stood here. I know it's a it's a place for people to go to walk and be outside and have concerts and things and that is good. That was a huge tract of land, by the way, and I think a certain amount of it ended up in the hands of NC State. Is that not right. correct? Yeah. Uh, Jim Hunt sold a lot of the, the hospital land off for Centennial Campus. Yeah, exactly. So, but uh, uh, it was good that we we got to keep keep it and and uh, the parcels of land of that size that could be used. It's kind of like, what would you do if you had a chance to sell off Central Park in New York? That's pretty valuable real estate right in the middle of Manhattan. Yep. And uh, so, so this this is Raleigh Central Park, and right. so you know we through the museum we are pretty. Uh, Integrated into it as as the city city of Raleigh got an incredible opportunity to turn like 300 acres into a marvelous central park and it's got about 80 some buildings out there so I think the possibilities are endless and so we are trying to work to to lay the foundation for the park by really trying to understand its its history and to try to share that history with with uh, the community because you really can't talk about its future without knowing where this park has been. So we've been into the uh, not only the history of the hospital, but for 150 years before the hospital, it was a plantation of the Hunter family. Now we're, going and we've stop, even, we're going to have to stop you there and hold this for the next program, okay? Because we've run out of time. Oh, no. It, time flies, Ernie, when you're having fun. But it's <laughs> been so nice to come tonight in this busy season, and it's always good to talk with you. and. Uh, Maybe we've set some people to thinking about uh, the future of Dick's Park and, and other things. But Ernest Dollar, Executive Director of the City of Raleigh Museum, has been our guest. Ernie, I may, Ernie, I may call you a little bit after we're off the air tonight, okay? That sounds great. Okay, thank you, John. That's it for tonight.